Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Rob Spedding. I'm the content director here at Bike Radar. And today I am joined by Alan Murchison. Alan held a Michelin star for over a decade as executive chef at Lauterland Restaurant in Berkshire. But Alan isn't just a chef, he's an ex-international endurance runner. He's a multiple ITU world and ETU European duathlon champion. And he is a time trialist of some note. He's got some really impressive uh, personal bests. 18.36 for 10 miles, pretty good. Uh, 48.15 for 25 miles, 141.37 for 50 miles. And he's obviously a masochist because he's even done a 100-mile uh, time trial with a PB of 3.36. So he's pretty quick. Um, he founded the Performance Chef after leaving Lauterland in 2016, and that's his, his business that we'll talk a little bit about. And he is also the author of two books, two cycling chef books, one which is a bestseller, I believe, Alan? It is indeed. And one which is uh, on sale very soon. It's on uh, on sale in, when, when's that coming out, your, your second book? It's out on March the 4th, Rob. So um, let's start really quickly about, let's, what's, what's Performance Chef? You were a Michelin-starred chef, you worked in restaurants, and now you run a company called Performance Chef. Tell us a little bit about that, just so, so, so the listeners can get a background there. Okay, so I did restaurants for many, many years and fell out of love with it for a number of reasons, um, probably about seven or eight years ago. And I had all this knowledge around food and thought, well, what do I do with it? And I was at an event and thought, do you know what? There's a missing link here. You know, there's a missing link between the scientists, the nerds, the people that will tell you to have 1.2 grams of protein per kilo of body weight, the Instagram influencers, you know, that it's all pretty food. And then myself, and I thought, let's try and put it together and, and offer a performance solution um, around food and nutrition for athletes, really. So it, to, to take all of those words, it's the practical application of sports nutrition. And I try and simplify it where possible. When you were working in restaurants were you um was that when you were sort of still riding or, or did you have a period because chefs aren't necessarily known as being especially healthy it's not a particularly a lifestyle that's particularly conducive to being out training is it because it's so you know it's so intense you work such long hours and such weird hours were you uh, were you a cyclist then were you still running then um for, well i was with the, with the working uh, working in michelin star restaurants is all consuming you don't have an awful lot of time to do anything else so for quite a long period like rob i i last run competitively as a young man when I was like 21, 22. And then I didn't do anything for 15 years other than just work 16 hours a day. And I put on a hell of a lot of weight. Like I literally went from racing at 10 stone in old money. And then by 38, I was up to 18 stone. Well, that's, that's a pretty impressive bulking phase. And as comes to a lot of us, you know, get to your late 30s, I wasn't in the best of shape. I was probably drinking too much. My diet was, I was existing really. Um, and it was all just around work. So I started back running in my late 30s. And then I started cycling again. So I didn't have any time, Rob. I was like literally working the best part of 100 hours a week. And I did that for, you know, from early 20s to late 30s. And then just got back into it slowly, late 30s, probably an original mammal. 
Um, but I'd, I'd always had a bike and I'd always, you know, if I was on a holiday or whatever, I'd always ride. Um, and I just managed to regain the fitness pretty quickly, to be honest. And did when you when you sort of started the, the cycling and the running again, did the did your relationship with food change particularly as, as you know, the food that you, you you were cooking was probably sort of quite rich, I would imagine, you know, lots of uh, lots of rich ingredients. The people that are eating in restaurants like that kind of indulgence. So how did your relationship with with food change when you when you start becoming an athlete again? Um, it's a, that's a really good question. It was all about finding what what was fit for purpose. And the whole thing about food is understanding the end user. So when you eat in a, in a Michelin star restaurant, you want food that isn't accessible. You want stuff that you can't do at home. Like you want to sit there and go, oh my God, how do they do that? Where does that flavor come from? Where does that technique come from? And it's almost the complete opposite of what I try and do now is I make it accessible and real. So I did look at food completely differently, but the the principles were the same. You have to cook for the right audience. So when I was cooking in restaurants, it was all about exceeding expectations. It was all about delivering that wow factor, and it was putting it up on a shelf. Whereas when it's doing nutritional food, it's all about, okay, what are you eating this for? Is it going to help you repair, recover? Is it going to help you fuel? Um, and And I actually just took the knowledge and applied it in a different way, just simplified it a lot, really. And then that's now become a business. So you you work with uh, elite athletes, but you also give advice to to people like myself. If I if I wanted to come to you and uh, and, and get uh, nutrition advice, you you would be able to help me. So you, you've taken what you've what you've learned as a chef, what you've been learning as an athlete. What does that now mean? Your overall sort of philosophy, would you say, is on on, on food and performance? How would you sort of sum up? I think I think it's about it's about balance and it's about understanding the meals. So what we try and do where possible is you said to me about hi, you phone me up and go, Hi, I'm I'm Rob. I will I want to complete or compete in an event. You know, so say you came to me and you were texting me and say, Hi, I'm Rob. Uh, you know, I've put on a few kilos over the last few years. What yeah, all right. I, yeah, all right. And, <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm a field runner and I'm now wanting to <laughs> I'll just get these digs out when I can. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to be in great shape for the etap in June. Yeah. That's what I'd like to do. Um, my diet's okay. I've got the wife at home. I've got a couple of young kids and we like to eat family meals. And I train an hour from Monday to Friday and do a couple of rides at the weekend. That's a textbook week. Mm. So what I would do, Rob, is I'd look at your training plan, I'd look at your training stress, and I'd look at the type of riding you're doing and then put a food plan that matches. At the end of the day, the, the biggest mistake that people make is they either underfuel or overfuel. And that's like, what does that actually mean? And that's a problem as you hear all these things about fueling. If you were driving from Bath up to Edinburgh, you'd never leave with a quarter of a tank of fuel. It would be pointless any more than if you said, I'm just nipping around to Tesco's to pick up the shopping. I need to go and put 80 pounds worth of diesel in the car. That's the kind of way that I look at it. So if you've got an easy day on a Monday, an example, and you've got 60 minutes, level two ride, that you're just going out to take pictures for Instagram, you go out with a bottle of water. That's absolutely fine. But if on Tuesday, when you get in from work, you're doing some god-awful session on the turbo, three by 20 minutes of sweet spot or over-geared reps or Tabata intervals, that's where going to require carbohydrate. It's going to require to fuel the ride. It's going to require protein to recover. And then what you've also got to think of is what you're having the next day because that cumulative fatigue. So what we try and do is look at the picture and, and it, the bigger picture. And that doesn't matter whether you're, you're world class or you just want to be the best rider in your street. 
it's really important that you match your training load with your food intake. And well, I'm, I'm very much of the view, Rob, that, you know, that if you've got a training plan or you're following a plan of which there's many great plans and structures out there, everything will have a purpose. So training is actually a piece of piss. You know, what you do is you, you do train, you do some training will help you recover. Some will help you practice race pace. Some will help you push up your top end. And, and do you know what? I actually think there's nothing wrong with just going on your bike and just going riding it mm. for shits and giggles. It's a nice day. Let's just go and ride our bike and enjoy the whole principle of riding a bike. I do that. I love to ride on rest days. I just go out and ride my bike because I like being outside and I think it's a really healthy thing to do. And I think if you have the same relationship with food, if you think, well, why am I eating this? Is it, is, 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 is it, I'm eating it because it's going to help me train or I'm eating this just because I really fancy it. You know, I fancy a big old dirty roast of 12 potatoes or I fancy a sourdough pizza. I think that's really important. And I see that with elite athletes as well, mate. You know, like elite athletes have days off food. They'll eat junk food. They'll eat snacks they'll eat treats they'll eat crisps they'll eat horrible you know they'll have full fat coke all of those things are important it's all about balance rob um mm. and that's very much my philosophy is to try and make it accessible but try and match training load which sounds really technical and a bit nerdy but the amount of effort you put in and the amount of food you intake and then what i try and do is use my 30 years plus of michelin star experience and make that food really tasty mm. And that, that's where, you, where your books come in, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch on those uh, in a while. Um, so what you're sort of saying is that it, 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 I think some people feel that eating for performance for training is complicated and also not, not unpleasant, but kind of a bit sciencey, and and maybe you, you, know, you should you, – you kind of – you need some exotic ingredients – I, I, I was going to say quinoa. That's not really that exotic, or, or science-based supplements, expensive smoothie makers, and of course, loads of time to prepare all this stuff and weigh out all your ingredients. Is that that's not the case? It's. Do you know what? If you get the principles right, you know we, you know the the the, the, the best breakfast you can have, arguably for most cyclists, would be something oat-based. So if you take the simplest things, if you said to me, "What's a day going to look like?" My my rule would be. You have to be able to buy everything from a local supermarket, whether that's Tesco, Sainsbury's, doesn't matter which one it is. You need to be able to do it in under 30 minutes because if it goes beyond that, I've lost you. And yeah. if I said to you, right, Rob, what are you going to do, mate? Is you're going to be at work all day. You're going to get in. You're going to train for 60 to 90 minutes, and then you're going to spend an hour and a half cooking. That ain't going to happen, mate. It might happen one day. It might happen two days. And that doesn't matter whether you're a recreational athlete or you're a world-class athlete. World-class athletes don't do that carry-on. They're either training or they're recovering and, or doing yoga or some other nonsense. <laughs> and, and, and that's the thing with it. So, you know, if you look at the, the, the most basic of breakfast, if you go down like Birch or Muesli, 50 grams of oats, 50 grams of Greek yogurt, 100 milliliters of milk, a handful of chia seeds, you mix that together and put it in the fridge overnight, that's actually got carbohydrate, it's got protein, it's got fat. It's got quick-release carbohydrate, it's got slow-release carbohydrate, it's got protein that's going to fill you up. <clears throat> that is a really good breakfast ahead of a ride or to, you know, that's perfect. Um, you know, you go back to simple things like porridge. You know, porridge can be really good, but then porridge can be 200 calories. Or if you've got a really hefty, so if you say a basic porridge made with, with semi-skim milk, a, tea, a teaspoon of honey, a chopped banana. That's okay. But then if you're going out for a full-on bit of madness, if you're going out for four or five hours getting half-wheeled by your mates around the hills, you probably want full-fat milk or cream. You want a couple of spoons of sugar in there. You want two chopped bananas and a handful of nuts because you need the calories. And 
it's just trying to get that balance really, Rob, to get get the things to work. And all the ingredients, you know, you look at the Asian section of your local supermarket, rice, pasta, get fish sauce, get soy sauce, get sweet chili sauce. As long as you're eating lots of veg, lots of protein, and, you know, a lot of the basic carbs are really, really inexpensive. And, and you know, what we tend to find is when people come on plan with us, they actually save money because they're not buying processed food. They're not buying pre-prepared products. And, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer that it, it, the, the simpler it is in some respect, the better. So I think we'll, we'll touch a little bit on breakfast later because you, you, you mentioned it there. But you know, you're, you're talking about porridge jokes there. That's that's kind of a basic in 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 our in a spedding household store cupboard. Um, it's a, a very popular breakfast. What are the you know what are the basics for 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 good uh, good nutrition for cycling for any kind of sport? You know, we, obviously we even people who are new to to cycling, new to sport, they know they should eat carbohydrate. They will have heard about carb loading and eating gallons of or tons of pasta before a ride they will know a little bit about i should have some protein afterwards um should i avoid fat are there good fats are there bad fats i mean what are the sort of you know what what's your advice around that okay so there's a couple of simple things that you can do so if you if you're if you're motivated by technology you know if you get something as simple as, as training peaks if you get training peaks basic account and if you get my fitness pal now, this is actually putting a level of nerdery into it, but it will give you an understanding and a guide. So my fitness pal, for those of you who don't know, is basically it's, a, it's, an, it's an app. It's free. And if you put your dishes into them, it will give you a breakdown of the calories and the macros within those dishes. If you then put that into training peaks, so let's, again, do your hypothetical hour. An hour on the bike could be horrendous. An hour on the bike could be 200 calories. It could be 700 calories. You could have fatigue after an hour on a bike or you could just flush your muscles out what that will do is it'll give you an idea about how much force you basically put through the pedals and what your energy expenditure was what i generally find is if you were to use say go buy the book because it gives you good recipes in it but if you then if you then put your food into my fitness pal it gives you a breakdown of all the macros and what i find by default by default on easier days my carbohydrate intake is about 50% of the calories that I take in on easier days. The rest is made up of protein and fat. On harder days, by default, it goes up to about 70-odd percent. And that's just because of the type of riding that I do. I, I would find that, that on harder days, by default, my carbohydrate intake goes up to about 70-odd percent. And that's just because... That's just because that is what it is. Um, I'd need carbs to be able to fuel your hard rides. So, so if I would, I would give you one bit of advice is try and get a gauge for what your food looks like. And I'll be honest with you, I think life's too short to be filling in apps and, and putting on all these details. But it will give you a feel for what you need to eat. So in simple terms, if you want to, if you want to make yourself feel full on easier days, fill yourself up with fruit and veg. You know, get, get a load of fiber in there, get a load of protein. And a great example is if we go, you know, if we look at the hypothetical situation of Rob Spedding's at his desk all day, if you're going to have an afternoon snack and it gets to four o'clock and you've had your grilled chicken salad with some new potatoes at lunchtime and some rocket and you get to four o'clock and, and you've got an easy ride in the evening, you know what, what do you have? If you have a pack of ham, a pack of ham is about 110 calories. You could have 100 grams of ham. If you have six jelly babies, which you go like that with one handful, that's actually also 110 calories. But 
that isn't that that isn't going to make you feel full, but it would be quite good to have that ahead of a hard session. Mm. So I would always say, you know, three hours before you're going to jump on a hard session, have a bagel with that butter and jam. That's absolutely perfect. But I quite often will fill myself up on on protein when I'm doing easier days. You know, I I'll eat cooked meat, I'll eat nuts, um, I'll eat seeds, I'll make, eat some homemade granola. Um, that all sounds a bit. It sounds a bit self-righteous, to be honest, but I'll try and do that where possible. Mm. The other thing that's good as well is like you can now buy some really good high-protein yogurts in your supermarket. So again, for a couple hundred calories, you have these these quark sort of, it's almost like flavoured cheese. Like those are really good for filling you up as well. Mm. So I think it's just a matter of trying to balance your macronutrient, which I I don't like talking in that terms, but carbohydrates are good for for harder sessions. Protein and fat is good for filling you up when you're doing easier stuff. And it's as simple as that. I got excited then. I thought you were going to giving me the permission to wrap jelly babies in ham, which, (laughs) you know, I might try that. Um, But it's a good good visual representation of what (laughs) calories look like. You know what I mean? Because if you look like... A large banana is 90 calories. A handful of jelly babies, which do nothing for you at all, is about the same. And a pack of arms, about the same. They all have slightly different needs, you know. And like, I, I, I think jelly babies before a ride are really, really good. You know, I don't find the habit because it's just, it's just, a, it's just going to give you a quick burst of energy. But they're not, they're not something uh, you know habitual. That shouldn't be your regular. Uh, afternoon snack, should it? No, I was just I was using it as a, an example. I was exaggerating for it. I'm really disappointed. I am so disappointed. I was really looking forward to ordering some uh, some jelly babies in my next my next shop. So carbs obviously important, protein important, and you've sort of talked about fat there. I think obviously fat does get uh, it, it's obviously always gets a bad rep, but it is absolutely vital, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Like if you strip all fire, you die, you become quite unwell quite quickly. And again, it's just about balance, Rob. And I think, you know, if you could use natural fats, anything that comes from a plant, a seed or a nut, essentially that's going to be good for you without overcomplicating it. Like you could go into, you know, for every study that you read that coconut oil is bad for you, you read one that's good for you. For every study, you say, people, you know, avocados are bad for the environment and bad for you, you read another one. I just think if you use the most nut- common sense, right, mm-hmm. would dictate that something that's coming from a plant, a seed, an nut or a grain is going to be better for you than something comes out of a packet. That is absolute common sense. And just try and use that approach when you can. Um and like, you know, yeah, you can be evangelical about it and go, yeah, we cook everything from scratch. You know, that's become very much a middle class hobby these days. But all I do is look at the packet and try and recognize what the ingredients are. And if you don't know what they are, just don't, you don't have it. And that, that is as simple as that. So if, if, if I look at our weekly food shop, um, yeah, we buy sweets, we buy chocolate. Yeah, that comes in the house. But probably 90% of the stuff that we come in is, is whole real food. We buy lots of green vegetables. We buy lots of roots. We buy lots of lean protein, as in turkey and chicken. Um, we eat red meat maybe once or twice a week. And then, again, we, we have all the carbs. Nothing's off limit. Now, mm. the best example, again, another good example of this, if I look at, say, you know, for the last couple of years, I've spent quite a lot of time working with the podium squad at British, uh, you know, British Cycling. So, mm. You know, they're very well funded. So anybody that's going to win an Olympic or a world medal on the track, we, we've done quite a lot of work with them. And out of all those athletes and at world championships and everything else, 
with all the resource they've got, all the funding, all the research, everything they've done, out of all of those athletes, everybody eats everything. Okay, uh, the whole squad of every athlete I've ever come across in that group, we've got two, one pescatarian and one vegetarian. Okay, that's it. Now, the vegetarian mm. is vegetarian for ethical reasons, not performance reasons. And then everybody else eats everything else. So they all eat cheese, they'll eat butter, they'll eat olive oil, they'll have nuts, they'll have seeds, they'll have full fat milk, they'll have carbs. But the training load and the food intake is matched. And that doesn't matter whether you're world class or you just want to be better than your mate down the club and it's the same principle so i think where, where possible try and buy whole natural foods and you know you walk around the supermarket and yeah i've been thrown out of supermarkets before trying to film in them they don't like you filming them 80 <laughs> percent of supermarkets are full of shite all right it's just processed food and it's just convenience food but you've got to think of it if you're not training do you need all this stuff i don't know but that's you know that's another topic for another time. Um, you know, and if you go back, you and I are gentlemen of a certain age, Rob. You know, if we go back to our grandparents' generation, you know, they made bread, they made scones, they made pancakes, you know, sweets were, were a treat that you maybe had once a week. Do you know what I mean? It was mm. and there was always a pan of soup on the go, wasn't there? You know what I mean? That was the sort of culture. And if you could almost go back to that kind of mindset that, you know, you, all your meals are predominantly based around vegetables. And good quality local meat. If you can get your head around that, then you won't go too far wrong, to be honest, Rob. Yeah, it's, it's that real food sort of idea, isn't it? Using real food. Uh, I mean, real real food. All food's real food, but it's. I think it's real real food when you're cooking um, and and you know making things from scratch. Where obviously there are some excellent recipe books out there, uh, some by cycling chefs, but but also you know as you said, avoiding the process stuff. And that actually sort of leads me a little bit into the real food versus sport food. You know, we, we all of us have used, have probably eaten far too many energy gels than, than we care to remember and, and energy bars. So when you're actually, you know, what's what's best, like a homemade flapjack versus a scientifically developed one? Or, and what, you know, the question I always ask is, hypothetically i would love to just be able to fuel on mars bars and ginsters pasties i'm sure that's not sensible but you know when you're out on a ride what what should you be scoffing i, I think again rob that is um that's it that's a good point what's the purpose of the ride is it to mm. complete a ride is it to compete what are you looking to do and i think that's what it comes down to and, and i've had a bit i remember doing a, a cycling club chart once and uh, it was the uh, it was a club dinner, and I was I was showing them how to fuel a hundred mile time trial, and I was showing them how I fuel a hundred mile time trial. Now I'm not doing a hundred mile time trial in six hours. I'm racing it, so I use gels, I use carbohydrate drink that is synthetic and is processed and is manufactured. But I want to get from A to B as fast as possible. If I was going out to do a leisurely five hours down the New Forest. I'd have a pocket full of bananas. I've had some homemade flapjack. I've some of the energy bars, and I might even have a homemade sort of energy drink that I'd have water with some orange juice and a pinch of salt in it. Mm. But I was competing, not I wasn't out for a ride. I was I was racing. So I think there's it's it's, it's the difference between the two things. So when I'm doing recreational riding, as in if I'm doing level two stuff, if I'm doing recovery rides, or I'm going out for a longer ride that isn't going to be too intense, I will, where possible, have real food, as in. Bananas, flapjacks, muffins, cookies, 
I quite often love a bag of jelly babies in my back pocket because mm-hmm. I quite like them. They're easy to eat when you're going along. Wrapped in ham or? Uh, no, no, I, t- I tend not to wrap jelly babies in ham, but I'm going to okay. try it. I am going to try it. <laughs> so, so that's what I'll take on a on an easier long ride or a social ride. If I'm going out to do stuff that's uh, going to be um, replicating race reps, as in, because I time trial, so if I'm out of a time trial bike doing efforts, I am taking carbohydrate drink at the same solution that I would race with. I will take energy gels because that's what I take when I race. And I think it's really important to train yourself to absorb the nutritional product that you're going to use for the event. And that doesn't matter whether that event is done at 20 mile an hour or at 30 mile an hour. It doesn't matter. You've got to train your gut to take on that product. Um, so when I'm going out, so again, let's look at two hypothetical rides. If you said, oh, let's go out for a, for a soft top, um, we're going to stop for a coffee ride, I'll literally will have nothing it's not a natural food as in a banana, a flapjack, a muffin in my back pocket. If I was going out to do two hours that I was doing absolute race reps for an upcoming 25-mile time trial or 100 or whatever, everything in my back pocket would be synthetic, processed sports nutrition product. And you could say, well, you're a bit of a hypocrite because you're going on about you know healthy, real food. But I'm racing, and that's the food that I use to race. Yeah. So I have to practice with it. So again, Rob, it's all about balance. So um, I've I've moved away slightly from using um, synthetic recovery drinks, like using like protein drinks when I get in, because to be honest, they 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 destroy my guts. I just don't like what they mm. do to my stomach. But if you look at Grand Tour stages, like when those guys are having their feed bags, they'll quite often have a little brioche with some ham and some cream cheese in it. You know, they'll have like they'll have little bits of like they'll have little bits of like they'll have rice cakes, they'll have savoury rice cakes, they'll have different textures of things. Because again, if they're doing three weeks on a bike, you, you can't just do that. But then when it gets towards the grippy end, you know, when they're going up the mountains or they're rugging it, you won't. You would not see any any world tour rider, any Grand Tour contender. He's rugging it. They've got an hour to go. Oh wait a minute, hold on. He's sitting up and he's having his Greg's sausage roll. You'll see them over the bar, squeezing a gel mm-hmm. in just to get that pure energy into the system. Yeah. <clears throat> so again, I think it's all about balance and understanding it, Rob. And it's very very personal. So to summarise that. I train easy on real food when I'm doing hard stuff. I train my body to take on sports nutrition product because that's what I race with. And so, uh, yeah, sounds like a, a perfectly sensible philosophy and one that you know I, I think I, I can get on board with. Um, I mean, I don't I don't have to worry too much about the really grippy stuff. So I'm quite I'm quite happy just to eat cakes and stop for coffee and all yeah, of that. Yeah, if, if, if you look if you look at racing and if you look at if you're if you're rugging it, you know. You need about a gram of carbohydrate per kilo of body weight per hour. That's the kind of metric that you're looking at. So if you were 75 kilo drop, I'm probably being generous. Yeah, I wish. I wish. If you take on 75 grams of carbohydrate per hour during that, you will probably be able to press the pedals as hard as you can go for as long as you want to do it. That That's the basic summarize. Now, that's not taking into consideration hydration. That's just purely keeping your tank topped up that you can keep pressing on. Um, but there's some very good exercises on it. Like you could get as nerdy as you want with it. Um, and, and you've seen some really good examples in, in, in Grand Tours where people have lost their legs and have blown completely. And then you've some really good examples of how feeling strategies have helped win Grand Tour stages as well. So it's practice, mate. It's, it's practice. 
I was going to say, you know, what are the common mistakes people make when it comes to nutrition, you know, sort of on the bike, off the bike? I mean, I guess on the bike, it's just not eating enough, you know. You, not eating enough. Like a common problem at the moment is, you know, is you go out and like last week I had a big old week and it was it was cold. I don't know when you're putting this out, but, you know, I did a week in winter. I think the average temperature was like one, two degrees. And, and I was only taking on maybe about one and a half litres in three hours like about 500 mil in three hours, whereas I thought I'd been, you know, 12, 14, 18 degrees, I'd probably taken on three times that amount. So hydration, not having enough and also not looking at the cumulative effect of this. So again, you or I could go out, Rob, and ride for three hours, have a couple of bottles and not eat enough. But what you'll do is you'll come in and eat 2,000 calories worth of shite over the next three hours after Mm. you've got in. So it's a bit of a false economy, Really? Because what happens is if you don't if you don't take enough stuff on on the bike, you end up riding like a three-legged donkey. You know, you lose your legs, you, all your power goes and everything. Whereas if you actually if you eat little and often, a good way of doing it is set your, your bike computer, your Wahoo, your Garmin for an alert every 8K. All right. So that's going to be every 15 minutes if you're cycling on 15 to 18 minutes. And if you do something every 15 to 18 minutes for the duration of the ride. That's as good a benchmark. Have a drink or have a little snack every every 8K and just put an alert on your computer. As simple as that. that that's probably the easiest thing you can do and just have little and often. And, and you touched on recovery then and you also talked about uh, how you sort of, you, you no longer sort of use the protein shakes because how, how important is that? Because it, like you say, if you, you can come back from a ride and, and a big ride and think, I've given myself permission now just to indulge and eat bit of rubbish and you know have a have a big burger or something like that have a have a roast dinner maybe uh, i mean how how can you how should you use food to help your recovery and and so if you're not if you're not using recovery uh sh- shop bought recovery shakes what's your kind of recovery uh process what do you do when you get in do you make do you make a smoothie do you do you have a peanut butter bagel um, it, it, do you know what? It's, it's very much dependent on the time that I've got. So obviously we're all working from home at the moment. So what I predominantly do is if I'm riding and I know I'm going to come in and it's going to be cold and wet and everything else, I quite often have a pan of soup, Rob. I have a yeah. pan of soup made and I'll have some bread. And to be honest, if I look at our, our, our textbook lunch will be a pulse-based soup. So if I've got a red lentil soup that I've made up using roast vegetables, root vegetables, red lentils, maybe a bit of chicken or ham in there, and then I've got a chunk of sourdough bread with some butter on it. I've got protein. I've got carbohydrate. I've got carbs. It's all there, mate. It's all there. Mm. So a bowl of soup made with pulses, which are going to have a level of protein in them, and a chunk of bread and a load of vegetables, is probably going to be slightly easier on your guts yeah. than having a synthetic shake. Now, let's paint another scenario. If you were, imagine normal time, Robs, and you've been with us. I get in from a bike ride, get in have a quick shower, shit, I've got to do the school run. I've then got to jump in the car, go and drive about, then take one of the kids to dancing, take one of the kids to bloody singing, then go to Tesco's. That's when I'll use yeah. a recovery shake, as I'll literally get a recovery shake and have it in the car. So it's better to have that than go two or th- then I'll go two or three yeah. hours. So it's again, it's about trying to paint a scenario. Ideal world, you'll get in, you'll eat real food. That's what you'll do in an ideal world. But... Don't get over your bloody self. If you're going to get in and you've got to go straight into meeting or go into doing dad's taxi or mum's taxi, which I would always end up doing. Listen, I would get in from rides. I want to go out and the best part of the day would be 12 to 3, working from home. Then all of a sudden you've got to do, you've got to do dad's taxi duties. Mm-hmm. 
before you know what it is, it's six o'clock and you haven't eaten since 12 and you've been out and ragged yourself on the bike. And that's the biggest mistake you can make, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, that's the point. Now, again, if you want to be evangelical about it, in in my book, we've got a really good uh, recovery drink called Nutty Slap, which is basically whole milk, a banana, some nut butter. You blend that up with a tablespoon of honey. That's doing as much good for you. Um, obviously, sports nutrition companies will tell you that the recovery shakes have got a, a balance of this, that, or whatever. But uh, be honest, mate, if you're still farting four hours afterwards, you've got to ask yourself, what's the benefit of that product? <laughs> and again, if you, if you look at it, if you were traveling, if I was at a race and I, I was in Wales doing a time trial and I finished doing a 25-mile time trial and then I've got a three-hour drive back home, what I will always do is I'll have a recovery shake um, I'll have it from one of the one of the brands that are using batch tested product. I'll have that sat in a, a cool box. I'll have that as soon as I finish. Then I'll drive to Cardiff Gate Services. I'll stop. I'll get sushi and a pack of chicken there, and then I'll get home. That's yeah. what I will do invariably if I was racing in Wales. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go starving for the sake of being evangelical any more than I'd be unrealistic that I'm going to take a thermos flask of scoop. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it. It's just. You've got to be real, Rob, and that's what yep. I try try and do. The other thing I would put also point out, I did touch a bit on it there, is that if you're going to do any form of racing, anything you've got a number on your back, it's really important that you use batch-tested product. Um, right. Because basically, in my professional sport role, we've got to have UK anti-doping accreditation. And the, the, there's a very high percentage of failed drug tests in amateur athletes come from contaminated supplements. So if you see uh, some sports shop, you buy something online, ah, it's amazing protein, it's reduced, it tastes amazing. you got to ask yourself what's in it. So mm. if you're putting a number on, make sure it's batch tested. Informed sport is, that's what you need to go down that route. And quite a few of the big brands are doing that. It's worth spending a little bit more because you're going to look like a complete dick if you get a drug test and you're still shit on the bike. <laughs> and I see it happen all the time. People get, oh, yeah. So, and, and everybody goes, oh, yeah, it was this. You, you'd lose your job. You'd look like an absolute tool, and it's completely avoidable. So don't do it. But use batch-tested product. So if you if you have energy drinks or energy f- food, um, sort of the, the scientific stuff, make sure it's batch-tested. What else should should I have in my store cupboard? Um you know what? What else would you? What you know? What would you say? The five things that every cyclist should have in the store cupboard, ready to just pull out and make something delicious. Are we talking about dry goods here, Rob? Is that what we're talking about? We could talk about yeah, dry goods. Right? You know, we're we're battening down the hatches. Let's uh... right. So what I would always have in my cupboard. So I've always got long grain rice. I've yep. always got rice. I've always got spices, and I've always got tinned pulses. Those are three things I've always got. So, again, if I went into my cupboard now, I'd say, oh, we've got nothing in the house. If I've got chickpeas, if I've got tinned tomatoes, and I've got some Moroccan spice and some rice, I can do a tagine because I'm going to have some rotten root vegetables in the bottom of the fridge somewhere. Um, so I think tin pulses are really good. They're really cheap. Chickpeas, kidney beans, butter beans, anything like that. Tinned tomatoes are really good. Um, I often like to have uh, a range of sort of Asian spices, like Thai green curry paste, Red curry paste, things like that are always really good to have. And then just your you dry, you dry carbs. Um, long grain rice is good. Couscous is good. Keep cooked quinoa, you know, have, again, the other one that's good to have is have packs of pre-cooked rice as well. Because, again, the one that I always say is a complete meal. I haven't got anything. If you take a bag of pre-cooked rice, get one tin of tuna and chop up an avocado, you've got a complete meal. That's sure. it. 
because you've got fat, you've got protein, you've got carbohydrate. Mm. And if you're feeling middle class, you can put some rocket in there and some Marks and Spencer salad dressing. But tuna, cooked rice, avocado, that's all you need. You know, and, and so I would say, yeah, always have those. And then in the fridge, you know, I've always got trying to have a load of vegetables in the fridge. That's what I always try and do as well. And, you know, I think your dry goods are always going to be where you fall down. So that would be my my top tips, spices, dry cart. And when I travel as well, so if I'm doing any camps, I always take Moroccan spice, barbecue spice. I always take a Thai curry paste with me. Um, because to be honest, anywhere in the world, you can get rice. Anywhere in the world, you can get vegetables. And anywhere in the world, you can get some form of edible protein. Mm. Mix it up and you've got a delicious meal, yeah. That's it. That, 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 that is exactly it. Whereas if you were to take a tin of tomatoes and just boil them up with chickpeas, that's mm. going to be tin tomatoes boiled with chickpeas. But if you cooked off an onion with some olive mm. oil, a bit of garlic and put some Moroccan spice in it, suddenly you've got levels of flavour and that's a lot more appealing mm. to eat. And what would you avoid? What would you what would you chuck away? Anything in a packet, anything right. in a packet or a jar. You know, um, ambient food, anything that's been pasteurised, sterilised to death or in a packet, you know. Or uh, the other one I would say, if something is low fat, low sugar and tastes amazing – that says to me, chemical shitstorm, okay? You'd be much better getting over yourself having full-fat Greek yogurt with a tablespoon of honey than having a zero-fat, zero-sugar yogurt that tastes amazing. Because why is it tasting amazing? Mm, what's in it? What is in it? And mm. there'll be all these artificial sweeteners and everything, and it's, it's false economy, Rob. So I yeah. would say anything too artificial, if anything is too good to be true, it is too good to be true. You know what I mean? And we're recording this in um, in in January, um, and it'll be going out hopefully uh, uh, not not too long after this. How how do you sort of if you if you are keen on on losing weight, uh, you know, we try and discourage people from trying to hit a cycling weight, anything like that. But you know, if you just want to shift a couple of pounds because you've you put on some lockdown timber over the Christmas period, what what is, what's your advice there? Is it I've looked at all these diets and mm. it's, it's amazing. Like if you go onto Amazon at the moment and you look at the top best-selling books on Amazon, it's the same every January, New Year, yeah. New Me, all this bollocks. It's all these diets that nobody's ever heard of. At the end of the day, if you want to lose weight, you need to create a deficit, all right? Yeah. I am not a great fan of exclusion diets. So everything that's in our diet is there for a reason. You need fat, you need carbohydrate, you need protein. So to go paleo, man... Jesus wept. You know, stuff like that just does my head on. Or to take any food group out is, is, is I think, is, is probably detrimental to health. In the short term, yeah, great, you might lose that weight, but it'll come back on and it could be possible to detriment health. The easiest way to do it is, again, and I'm not in the tech and I'm not sponsored by my fitness pal, go into my fitness pal, say you want to try and do a 500 calorie deficit on your easier days. And then all I do is have slightly less of each type of food and then just get used to weighing out. Like how much rice do you eat when you're having rice, Rob? Like the difference between 75 grams dry weight and 100 grams, that's your deficit for the day. Mm. Having 5% fat yogurt as opposed to full fat yogurt, there's your deficit for the day. You know, you just build it up gradually like that. Having 50 grams of oats in the morning as opposed to 75 grams of oats, having a teaspoon of honey as opposed to a tablespoon of honey, 
mate, there's 500 calories there, but don't say, right, I'm going to take carbs out, I'm going to take fat out, I'm going to take protein out, because all you're going to do is that's going to have a domino effect. So I would say give yourself a realistic timescale. Um, six to 12 weeks is probably good. Uh, set yourself a 500-calorie day, day deficit, but then don't be greedy. Well, don't go 800 calories, because what will happen is two days later, you'll be eating your socks, you'll be starving, <laughs> or you'll be so shit on the bike that you'll then overeat and compensate for it. But the, the metaphorical sweet spot is probably 500 calories. And it's like, there's not a cyclist out there that doesn't want to lose weight. And I, I did a really interesting exercise at the start of last year. Was I was out um, doing some wonderful work out in America. And I managed to put on, I did two big blocks of training. And I managed to put on like six kilos. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I was eating really well, but just eating too much. And then I came home and over the period of 12 weeks, I did a 500 calorie a day deficit and lost six kilos quite comfortably. Still did intensity. Still, I did it as a bit of a, an exercise for the new book. It's just to see. And all I did was I still had chocolate every day. I still had full fat milk. I still had flat whites. I just reduced the quantity of each of the things that I was eating. And I'm, I just kept an eye on it. And I would say, and I also tried to make sure that I, I ate enough on the heavy days is don't don't be going in with an 800, 900 calorie a day deficit because that will bite you on the ass. Mm-hmm. Um, deficit is what you need. To exaggerate, exaggerating for effect, theoretically, you could eat nothing but cucumbers. and You need to eat thousands of them. But, but theoretically, you could, you know, just eat, you know, almonds or whatever and still put on weight. And alternatively, if you eat, say, 1,700 calories of Mars bars a day, and you did that for a month, you'll lose weight. You wouldn't be very well, but you could do it. Get a deficit. All I would do is reduce down everything and just get a little set of weighing skills and just keep an eye on what you're eating. In my head, I am trying to add up how many Mars bars that would be a day. Not, not as many as you think. Probably not as many. Delicious, though, wouldn't it? Delicious way to get ill. Probably about seven, seven or eight, I think. Probably about all? seven. Yeah, yeah. Seven would be about 1,800 calories. I'd probably wrap them in ham with some jelly babies just for a bit of variety. Yeah, be, be yeah but, the, but the deficit, deficit thing, and, you know, there's, mm. there's, there's, I've read so many books, I've read so many articles, and... There's a great, very good sports scientist who's the font of old knowledge, a guy called Oscar Jakindrup. Mm-hmm. And if, if you follow him on Instagram or Twitter and you look at some of this, like this guy's God in sports nutrition, just look at his stuff. It's a deficit. All of these diets work. Keto, paleo, all of this stuff works by creating a deficit. Yeah. So there's no real... There is a science to it, but there's no magic to it. That's for sure. There's no magic. Yeah. You just move a little bit. You move a little bit more and eat a little bit less. And what you choose to eat less of is entirely your choice. My advice would be just to reduce the amount you eat of each yeah. thing and don't take any food group out. Cool. And, and you sort of you mentioned that you've read a lot of books. You've written two, um, so we can do we can do a shameless plug now. So the new one's coming out. Is that, is that sort of more based around, I, I have the, the original copy in front of me, which I'm looking at, which doesn't really work on, on a podcast. So they're recipes for performance and pleasure. I've made a few from that and they are really good and they're very easy. And I'm not just saying that because, because, because I know you, um, what's the new book? What's the sort of ethos behind that one? Right. Well, what we want to do is to, to, we kind of almost like traffic, like, system the book is we have we did dishes for easier days to your day dishes for medium days and dishes for hard days and we tried to make sure that people correlated hard riding with calories 
medium riding with medium load and then lower, you know, meals that would fill you up without being 800, 900 calories for, for an individual portion. And we did a power to weight chart in there as well. So people could see the impact, the very visual impact of losing weight. Um, because it, it was something I felt quite strongly about, but I, what I didn't want to do was do a diet book because I just think that the connotations and the messaging of that is really dangerous. So, mm. you know, the, the new book is called Recipes for Getting Lean and Fueling the Machine. Um, it's available to pre-order on Amazon, but we're not really promoting it at the moment, um, but we will do. And what's really cool in there is I've used the two most difficult groups that you can find as teenage girls and Olympians. So all the <laughs> recipes have been tasted on those two very difficult groups. To buy. But they've all worked. Um, and what we try to do very much is divide them into groups. So if these are dishes for easier days and these are dishes for harder days. And that's kind of ethos behind it. But I think the other thing, Rob, you know, looking about weight and you touched on it, I'll go back, I'll do a, I'll do a Rob, you touched on this earlier about getting to cyclist weight. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, it's all about identifying what your strengths and your weaknesses are. Like I'm, I, I set at racing weight at about 73 kilos. I could never get down to 65 kilos, 62 kilos and be a climber. I'd be shit. So I do time trials and time trials on flat courses is where I go well. You know what I mean? If I look at, if, if you've got a, like a rider who's naturally going to sit at 50, 55 kilos, by default, they're going to be a shit time trialer on a flat course because it's all about power and it's all about aerodynamics. So I think you've got to try and find your niche. And if, you, if you're, you know, a slightly heavier set rider, if you've got slightly more muscle mass, then what you don't want to do is try and change your whole physiology and, and what you've actually got. It's just try and choose your races and, like, but the amount of conversations, I'll be honest, Rob, it scares the shit out of me even now with all the education we've got and, you know, sports psychology and everything. And, and I still speak to, we'll speak with professional athletes. Oh, I want to lose a bit of weight or that. And you're going, but you're a really, really good athlete and you go really well. Just pick your races. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you look at world, like, let's look at iconic riders. Like, Peter Sagan, as an example, is never, ever, ever going to win a mountain stage of a Grand Tour. It ain't going to happen anymore then somebody like Nairo Quintana or, you know, Bernal is going to win a classics round, you know, mm. four, six hours of shitty cobbles in Belgium. It's unlikely to happen because he just doesn't have the physical strength and the capabilities of doing that. And I think you've got to, you've got to work out what works for you. Um, but trying to fit, say, a 75 frame, 75 kilo frame, and try and make that a 60 kilo athlete because I've seen one on television mm. and it looks like that, ain't going to happen, Rob. It's just, it's a really unhealthy thing. So I think, You've got to pick your battles and choose your events. And that's something that's really, really important. Um, and if you look at, you know, if you look at, say, pursuiting, and I mean, we mentioned this in the book as well, is like if you look at somebody like Ed Clancy, you know, Ed Clancy's, what, 82, 83 kilos. He ain't ever going to win a mountain stage of, of, of a race, you know. And if he was trying to do there's the odd anomaly, like, some, say, somebody like Bradley Wiggins, who, when he was pursuiting, was 80-odd kilos, who got down to 60-odd kilos for a very short period of time for a Grand Tour. That is exceptional, but it's also very unhealthy, mm. and it's not its not a sustainable thing for as mere mortals. Um, and what you've got to remember is when, when elite athletes are doing that, They've got a support infrastructure around them. They don't have to go to jo- they don't have to go to work, Rob. They don't have to do the school run. They don't have to go and stand on a school playground full of snotty kids or go to an office full of people coughing. They are so on the edge of being unwell when they mm. are at that amount of debt. You know, if they're running six, seven, eight percent body fat, they ain't doing the school run. 
you know what I mean? It's, and, and that's what you've got to think of. You've got to be realistic about what, what's achievable for you and your body type. Pick your goals and then eat accordingly, basically. I, I, absolutely, mate. Mm. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there are the odd athletes that, that, that can transcend. You know, they can be slightly bigger athletes that go very well on mountains or they can be slightly smaller athletes. You know, you a lot of the South American guys are, are quite small frames that can go well. But generally, stronger, bigger athletes go better on slightly tougher terrain and again you're doing two or three hour climbs or you're bloody you know they're doing four thousand meters of climbing in in a grand tour stage that invariably will not be won by a 75 kilo rider it's not for the likes of me uh you know my take home there is that me and ed clancy we're we're of a similar similar weight so i've obviously got the tokyo team pursuit is my goal for 2021 exactly you know one of the greatest pursuers well arguably the greatest pursuer in history yeah exactly but you know, if Ed was to try and try and then transcend that, but then if you look at that team pursuit team, you've got you've got a young lad like Ethan Hater who can pursue, but he can also climb. Mm. He can time trial. You know, he, at some point he's going to have to pick his battles. But it's 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 an interesting one. So I just think you've got to you've got to choose you've got to choose an event that's going to complement you as a rider. But you know, I I, I know myself if I was to try and get sub seventy kilos at a guy that's going to be fifty. That would be a really unpleasant experience for me and everybody around me because I would be horrible to be around. And for our listeners, you know, it's actually more about enjoying your riding and probably enjoying your eating as well. There's there's nothing wrong with those two things at all. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And, and, you know, that's a beautiful thing about cycling, Rob. And, and, you know, when when we start working with people and, and, you know, they always say, ah, you know, you only work with elite athletes. Do you know what? One of the most satisfying... uh, clients we've ever had was a lady called janet and janet came to us in her 50s and she'd just been made redundant right so she'd never been sporty she'd never done sport at school and she'd been made redundant in her 50s and she took her redundancy money and blew it on her cervello p5 time trial bike right <laughs> and she <laughs> and uh, she'd watched uh, a video online and she she messaged us and goes oh what do you do judicial plan i've got a pl- i've got these goals would you work with an athlete like me and i'm like well what's an athlete like you i said have you got you know do you ride a bike she goes yeah i said have you got a goal she went yes i said well that's fine and janet i think she was 58 right was she 58 57 58 yeah just been made redundant never done anything at all bought a bike she wanted to break an hour for 25 miles now that is quite a given, and and I said I tell you what we'll do it, but I won't. I'll do your training for you, and you got to listen to me. So basically, she bought the Endura skin suit. She went and did an aerodynamic bike fit. She did everything, and two years ago down in Wales, she did fifty-eight minutes and forty seconds for twenty-five miles. But for six months, mate, she religiously listened to everything. She drank beetroot juice. She had all the, oh, I've never had this quinoa stuff before. <laughs> she, ate, she ate green vegetables. Oh, we don't have green vegetables in ours. She was brilliant, absolutely lovely. And do you know what? I got as much satisfaction out of that as a process and being bought in. And as a, as a due to, you know, when people get world tour rides or where they win grand tour stages or they win, you know, world-class medals, that's brilliant. But in honesty, elite athletes in some respects – are a lot easier to work with because they don't have a job per se. Mm. You know, they've got an infrastructure around them. They've been tested to death. We know the physical capabilities. I actually find it as satisfying or a lot more satisfying when we've got people that have got jobs and kids and lifestyles and they're maybe training six hours a week 
and they're achieving really, really brilliant goals by their own standards. And and that's not just saying that, yeah, you can say that's all a bit flowery, but it's genuinely quite warming because, to be honest, Rob, you and I have still got goals. You know, we've got, mm. you know, there's still things that I want to achieve as an athlete. There's still things that you want to achieve. And the investment, and I don't like the word sacrifice because we're not working in a coal mine. You know what I mean? We're, we're middle-class chaps messing, messing about like right here. Like, like, let's put it in the context. You know, there's no sacrifice going on. We're choosing to do this and we're in a fortunate position that we can ride a bike and, you know, we're, we're allowed to do that. But the, the investment and the time personally, physically, emotionally and financially is as great for you or I as it is for mm. an Olympic athlete. It's just different. And that's why I would give as much focus to somebody wanting to be the best rider in the street or get through a sportif or get through an event that they really enjoy it and enjoy the process as opposed to winning a, a, an international medal. So there can be satisfaction gained in all of those things. You know, it's a bit like you, Rob. If you do a really good podcast... And a hundred people listen to Chance it. Chance to be a fine thing. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? That's good. Whereas if you do something that's a crock of shit and like a hundred thousand people listen to it and you go, well, that was really bad content, but you, you were slugging somebody off or it wasn't that ethical. You know what I mean? I, I just think you got to do stuff you enjoy. And, I, and that's what we, we work with people we enjoy and mm. we like, like the process and we, we, you know, we do buy into it. So yeah, but pick your battles, Rob. You've got to do that. You know, we've still got to get you on a time trial bike as well. That's one we were going to do. It will happen. It will happen one day. It will happen. But so we'll be, we just need to be more Janet. Um, Alan, I think we'll, we'll wrap that up there. That was absolutely brilliant. Thanks for your time. Uh, really good. Some some great insight there. When is the the next book out? When's that? At? You say it's pre-order on Amazon, but when's it actually sort of going to be? In? It's going to be out on March the fourth, which I believe might be World Book Day. But March the fourth, it will be available. Uh, it's kind of it's a cool book. I'm really happy with it. It's the difficult second album. Yeah. The first book exceeded our expectations. It was published in UK, Australia, USA. It was translated into German, Dutch, and it's now, I think, believe uh, it's going to be down in Chinese as well, which is kind of cool. And it's mm-hmm. it's it's sold really well. So yeah. that's rewarding. That's really rewarding. And do you know what's brilliant as well? People still send me pictures of stuff they cook. What is also amusing is that quite often I haven't got a bloody clue what a dish is because I got, it doesn't, doesn't bear any resemblance to what I cook. But but we still get stuff sent to us all the time. Like on a daily basis, I must get 20, 30 dishes to be sent via direct message every day, which is really cool because um, there's no point in having a book that only sits on a coffee table. I don't want to do that. And the next book is pretty much it, it, it's more of the same. Um, if anything, it's better researched because I recognised that we needed to we needed to improve on the first book and we needed to make the next one better. Um, and it's it's a comparable book. It's a good book. I'm really happy with it. Well, good luck with that. And um, I'm sure there'll be plenty of listeners who, who, who'll go out and buy that. And once again, thanks, thanks for your time. And to everyone else, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening to us and comment on uh, on our social media platforms. And, and you can send us pictures of, of the food that you have cooked from Alan Murchison's book. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com.